This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Fifteen years on up, uh, a great deal of my thoughts were uh, basically unshareable. We are all evil in some form or another. Yes, I am not a hundred percent, but I am evil. My mother was a, a sick, angry, hungry, and very sad woman. I hated her, but I wanted to love my mother. This is Serial Killing, a podcast. Hello and welcome to Serial Killing, a podcast, where we also veer off the serial killer path to delve into other topics within our beloved true crime community. I want to give a special thanks to my patrons, of course, Florence, Teresa, Sarah, Sophie, Nanette, Emily, Wannabe Sleuth, Gabrielle, Gaylin, Cassandra, Robert, Emma, Bree, David, Judy, and John. Thank you so much. Our Patreon community is growing. So guys, this podcast is going to be on Sid Vicious. Now, Murder Fam, I need you to listen closely, okay? This one comes with a massive disclaimer, disclaimer, because it involves very heavy very triggering and upsetting topics such as animal abuse, heavy, heavy drug use, and suicidal ideation. Please proceed with caution. I'm not joking. Simon John Ritchie was born on May 10th, 1957 in Lewisham, Greater London, England, though I will continue to just call him Sid. So let's get into some history for that time. We've been through this year before, so I'm just going to kind of touch up on the highlights. Egypt was able to reopen the Suez Canal after the crisis. Singapore and the UK agreed to let Singapore rule itself after a week-long constitutional conference in London. Russia was launching the first artificial satellite, Sputnik 1, and the Viet Cong guerrillas were attacking South Vietnam. Now, there's really not that much information about their beginnings, but Sid's parents were John Ritchie and Anne MacDonald. John was a guardsman at Buckingham Palace, as well as a semi-professional trombone player in the London jazz scene. Anne MacDonald apparently dropped out of school early because she really just didn't fit in well, wasn't doing well in school, and she went on to join the Royal Air Force. This is when she met John, and together they would have Sid, and as far as I could find, they never had any other children, and I know Anne didn't. While he was still very little, his mother moved them to Ibiza, which is a small island off of the eastern shore of Spain. John had told her that he would join them there and send money for support, but neither one happened. And this, of course, would be all the information that I could find about his father. So, 
and sold marijuana to make ends meet. As Sid grew into a smaller child, she was already a pretty heavy drug user and unfortunately used her son as a mule to move drugs around, stuffing his little clothes with packages of drugs. Then she took Sid and moved back to England, the child's clothing again stuffed full of drugs to smuggle back into the country. Anne then met and later married a man named Christopher Beverly, and Sid was going by his biological father's first name and his stepfather's last name, so he was going by John Beverly. But as it turned out, Christopher had cancer and died only six months after the marriage. This forced Anne to move herself and Sid to an apartment in Tunbridge Wells, Western Kent, southeast of London in 1968 when he was just 11 years old. Now Sid went to school there while his mother managed a local bar. He went on to go to high school at Sandown Court, which is now just called Tunbridge Wells High School. Now, a man that had actually gone to school with him said that he was a bit feisty and wasn't afraid to get into fights, but that he was a very different kind of person compared to the other kids. He was very childlike and loving. His mother was involved in heavy drugs his entire childhood, both in trafficking and consumption. Her own drug use had already escalated to shooting speed or heroin at this point. And while it isn't clear exactly when she started, she began providing Sid in his very early teenage years with speed. Even giving him a baggie with the drug and syringes inside in front of a high school friend named John Lydon, who will be an important player later in the story. Now, John used to hang out with Sid in his and his mother's apartment where they would also all drink beer and listen to music together. John would state in later interviews that he witnessed, on Sid's birthday one year, his mother handing her son drugs and all the necessary tools and told him, happy birthday. In the show, quote, Sid Vicious, The Final 24, it said that he injected up to 14 times a day. At one point, while he was still in high school, he was deeply depressed and having suicidal thoughts. He was brought into the counselor's office with another boy who was supposed to be his friend to discuss why suicide isn't the answer. His friend said something along the lines of how Sid should just kill himself and get it over with, to which Sid's reaction was to nod his head in anguish. Another disturbing habit that Sid began displaying, though not often, and I couldn't find the exact age when he began, it was witnessed by others that he was torturing and killing cats. You see, he would find a stray cat and strangle them by wrapping a belt around the cat's neck, holding it tight and watching the poor animal struggle and slowly die. And he also didn't just harm cats. He engaged in self-mutilation. Another witness, when Sid was a teen, stated that he once used an aluminum can lid to cut himself. The self-harm was for attention, as many witnesses stated. A friend's father actually said, quote, If he was sitting here and no one was taking any notice of him, he'd cut his hand or something to attract attention. You'd have to take your mind off everything else and look at him, 
unquote. He was also seen putting cigarettes out on his arms. But Sid had developed a love of glam rockers such as David Bowie, who it was said he was actually really very obsessed with, T-Rex, and so on, and started out emulating their more feminine clothing style before changing over to the look that we all know him by. And everyone spoke about how he had an incredible eye for specific looks and fashion, often freezing with no coat on so that he could show off a shirt that he had just purchased. So by the age of 16, his mother kicked him out of the house. During an interview with Anne, his mother, she stated, quote, I remember saying to him, it's either you or me, and it's not going to be me. I have to try to preserve myself and you just fuck off. He said, I've not got anywhere to go. And I said, I don't care. Unquote. She was so far gone on heroin and opiates, which encompassed every moment of her life that she simply had no interest in his. So even though he was just 16 years old and ordered to leave his mother's house, let's just stop here and examine the effects of his childhood, which I'm sure we already know the answer to. Now, it is absolutely no secret that Sid's mother was a drug addict who was also dealing, right? So common traits observed in children of addicts, according to safeharborrecovery.com, are becoming isolated and afraid of people, especially authority figures. They become approval seekers who lose their identities trying to please others. They can be frightened by people who are angry around them or are receiving any level of criticism and Obviously, they are much more likely to become alcoholics and addicts themselves and tend to maintain relationships with others who use. They tend to view themselves as the victim or feel guilty when they stand up for themselves and many stuff their feelings from their traumatic childhood, which can then lead to coping mechanisms such as self-harm. And a big one is that they often struggle with impulse behavior, acting out for instant attention and gratification. I didn't immediately find any evidence that his mother was physically abusive to him, though it was hinted at pretty thoroughly. But it would be hard to imagine she was really very present for him in most aspects of his young life. Generally, there is a role reversal and the child has to become the parent. Parental substance abuse severely impacts children's health and development. I mean, this makes sense. Statistics show that the children are more likely developmentally delayed and child neglect is incredibly common. The emotional impact of substance abuse is severe as children learn their needs are no longer a priority. Neglect has lasting effects on children emotionally and can even have psychological side effects and negative health outcomes. Often behavioral and emotional problems arise in children who live in homes with addicted parents. This may mean angry outbursts, depression, anxiety, or detachment. So, Speed, or methamphetamine, is a potent and addictive central nervous system stimulant. It is highly addictive. It goes by many names that most of us are all pretty familiar with. It's been in use since the early 60s, according to drugs.com, and it can be smoked, snorted, 
taken orally or injected, which is the case in SIDS beginnings. It's normally and under pharmaceutical conditions used for attention deficit hyperactivity disorder to stimulate the understimulated part of their brain, causing a calming effect. It has been used to help with obesity as well, but again, it's highly monitored due to the very high risk of abuse. Now, people say that they feel an intense sensation or a rush, which lasts anywhere from a few minutes to hours, depending on how it's ingested. The immediate effects include increased activity and body temperature, talkativeness, increased breathing and concentration, decreased appetite, elevated blood pressure, rapid heart rate, increased sex drive, and a sense of well-being. Withdrawal symptoms include severe depression, anxiety, fatigue, intense cravings for the drug, and even psychosis. Overdose and death are fairly common, so there you go. Now, heroin is a derivative of morphine, which in a roundabout way comes from the resin within opium poppies. Once heroin enters the brain, it is converted to morphine and very quickly binds itself to opioid receptors. The description of the feeling differs in some ways, but the overall consensus is that they feel a surge of pleasurable sensation or a rush. They say that it is often accompanied by a warm flushing of the skin, dry mouth, and the arms and legs feeling heavy. And then another wonderful side effect is severe itching, nausea, and vomiting. It makes the person feel euphoric and drowsy for several hours. Their cognitive abilities are compromised. The heartbeat begins to slow, the breath also becoming slower and more shallow. This can go so far as to lead to a coma, permanent brain damage, and be life-threatening. Continued heroin use changes the actual physical structure of the brain. Now absorb that. It creates long-term imbalances in neuronal and hormonal systems that are extremely difficult to reverse. There is deterioration of the white matter of the brain that negatively affects decision-making, ability to regulate impulses and behavior as well as responses to stress. And the kicker is that the longer you use, the more of a tolerance is developed and therefore higher doses are needed. And there's really no point in going over the withdrawal symptoms. I think we're all pretty familiar with it. And if you're not, I highly suggest you go watch the movie Train Spotting. It has Ewan McGregor in it. It's great. It's gross, but it's great. So as you can imagine, these habits would have been all encompassing to his mother, leaving her son all but to raise himself and financially unstable. Sid had no role models during his childhood and no real supervision. People described his upbringing as, quote, basically a black hole, unquote, due to his mother's lifestyle. She didn't seem to involve herself in his life really at all, at least on any parental level. And then we have the animal abuse. The mistreatment and abuse of animals is a significant indicator of future violence towards humans, including intimate partner abuse and murder. 
Studies definitively show that animal cruelty is one of the earliest markers for future acts of both violent and nonviolent criminal behaviors. The connections between experiencing abuse, witnessing domestic abuse, and future animal cruelty are astounding. And those numbers are even scarier the younger the animal abuser is. And then finally, we have his suicidal ideation and self-harming. Now, often teenage suicidal ideation comes in two forms, passive and active. Passive refers to the experiencing of vague ideas about committing the act. It is most often a thought about ending mental pain more than the actual dying. Active, however, is when a teen experiences persistent thoughts of ending their life and they continue to feel hopeless. For Sid, there was mention of one counselor that did want to help him, but the support friend, quote unquote, he brought into the office with him made a joke about how Sid should just end it and kill himself. And Sid nod in agreement. That's just awful. And also, Sid self-harmed. Motivations behind this behavior include trying to reduce anxiety, sadness, and or loneliness to help calm down from being very angry, to push themselves due to self-loathing for attention so that someone will see their distress or sometimes to just, quote, feel anything. And we already know that he cut himself for attention if he felt he wasn't getting enough. So here we have a child born into basically a broken home. A mother that moved him around fairly frequently, used him as a drug mule, neglected him, ignored him, but was happy to supply him with two of the worst drugs you could give anyone, period, and paid no mind to the fact that he was harming himself. And guys, I wish I could tell you that the story gets better from here, but that would be a horrific lie. So let's continue. At 16 years old, Anne, his mother, had kicked him out, telling him she didn't care if he had to sleep on a park bench to pack his things and go. He had nowhere to go. One of the guys he went to school with asked his mother if Sid could come stay with them, and she kind of begrudgingly agreed. But he would only be there a few weeks because apparently he worked things out with his mother and she said he could come back briefly. But once Sid was out of school, he and a group of young men began working at a lumber yard, but he was fired. He mostly just wandered around late at night along his favorite stomping grounds, King's Road. Now, it's a road that was once, quite literally, King Charles II's private road until 1830 in West London. It's mostly associated with 1960s fashion and style. A magazine once wrote, quote, an endless frieze of many-skirted, booted, fair-haired, angular angels, unquote. It held some of London's most fashionable shopping and boutiques. It was also the headquarters of Swansong Records, owned by Led Zeppelin. Now, it's said that Sid was obsessed with King's Road and desperately wanted to hang out with the regulars there. There was a store there, literally called Sex, that specialized in punk rock clothing, but they also sold fetish and bondage wear. By 1976, Sid was living in rundown apartments or what they call squats around West London. 
He and John Lydon, who would be known as Johnny Rotten in the very near future, hung out together quite a bit during this time. Sid was now pretty tall, quite thin, and had his rather dark hair all kind of slicked back. Johnny Rotten, nearly exactly the same, but blonde. He met a girl and joined her band called The Flowers of Romance. You see, Sid had randomly acquired a saxophone, and that is what he played in the band, but it wasn't to last, but it would be his first taste of what he wanted to do. And fun fact, Sid is the one who sort of invented the pogo dance move or just jumping straight up and down. The people that were closest to him said that the sort of nihilistic attitude that came with punk, well, Sid seemed to take that aspect of it too personally. You know, at first he was kind of shy, described as a sweet guy with a great sense of humor, and he seemed somewhat naive, but became quite broody, kind of quick. And the girl that he was living with during this time later commented in an interview that, more often than not, Sid wet the bed. It was cited in a few sources that his sexuality was also kind of up in the air. It is hinted that he had sexual experiences with men, but would then be upset with himself the next day. Now, during the Ramones' first visit to England, Dee Dee, who had a pretty bad reputation himself, said that he was quite taken aback after witnessing Sid's drug use. He stated in an interview, quote, Sid pulled out a set of works and put a whole bunch of speed in the syringe and then stuck the needle in the toilet with all the puke and piss in there and loaded it. He didn't cook it up. He just shook it, stuck it in his arm, and got off. John Lydon had a pet hamster, and when Sid reached his hand in to pet him, the hamster bit him. The hamster's name happened to be Sid, so this is how he got his name, from stating John's pet hamster Sid was vicious. But as far as supporting themselves, they would do street performances with Sid playing the tambourine, covering Alice Cooper songs, and apparently people gave them money to stop. Now, after the Flowers of Romance, Sid played drums for a short time for Susie and the Banshees and actually did a live performance at the 100 Club Punk Festival. Sid was also considered for a lead singer position for the group Damned, but he didn't show up to the audition, though he later argued that he wasn't told about the audition and it was a whole thing. Now, whether this really was a misunderstanding or whatever, he got all hopped up on amphetamines and alcohol. He threw a broken glass bottle up on the stage during a damned show. While it missed its intended target, a shard partially blinded a girl in one of her eyes. Sid was arrested the next day and put in jail. One of his friends sent him a book about Charles Manson, of all people, to read while he was in there. But once he was out and life went on, as life often does, Sid was asked to join the band The Sex Pistols after their bass player left the band in February 1977 because he rarely ever missed a show. I mean, he was their biggest fan. Sid was 19 years old at this point. Now, keep in mind that he had no idea how to play a bass guitar, but as their manager Malcolm McLaurin said, quote, if Johnny Rotten is the voice of punk, then Vicious is the attitude, unquote. 
Malcolm also declared that if he had met Sid before Johnny, Sid would have been the front man of the group because he had so much charisma. And you know, Sid really did begin to pull together the quintessential punk look. Again, he was well over six feet tall. He had jet black hair that he was now spiking out in every direction. He wore the right clothes, haphazardly painted his nails purple, as well as wearing the perfect attitude all over his face. So his first show with the band was in April of 1977, and because he didn't know how to play bass, while they were recording their first album, quote, never mind the bollocks, here's the Sex Pistols, unquote, another man was brought in to play all but two songs. Another reason he wasn't actually on the album was because he had been in the hospital with hepatitis due to his drug use. At this point, he had also had a new girlfriend, Nancy Spungen. So let's get a little bit of her backstory. Nancy Laura Spungen was born on February 27, 1958 in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. It is reported that she was born with cyanosis, which is a blue or purple discoloration of the skin due to lack of oxygen and and she nearly died from oxygen deprivation due to her umbilical cord being wrapped around her neck. But she was otherwise healthy and released after eight days. It is also reported that she was a very difficult baby and would cry for hours on end, which sounds like colic to me, but the temper tantrums continued later into her childhood. This turned into displaying violent behavior toward her siblings as well as other members of the family. There is a story that apparently she threatened to kill a babysitter with a pair of scissors. Her parents were desperate for answers and took her to a psychiatrist who suggested she was only acting out for attention. So at 11 years old, she was expelled from public school for walking out of class and she never went to public school again after. But she was suffering with severe hallucinations and horrible nightmares. So she was taken for a psychiatric evaluation where it was determined that she was suffering from schizophrenia. She was in and out of schools, admitted to institutions and back out. Her erratic behavior escalated to her stealing and taking drugs. So in 1975, when she was 17 years old, she moved away from her parents into an apartment in New York, and by the next year, she was well-versed in the rock music scene and was friends with Debbie Harry, the Ramones, and more. She worked as a stripper and a sex worker around Times Square. In early 1977, she decided she was taking the drugs too far and wanted to get clean, which of course didn't last. It was then that she moved to London, England and met the members of the Sex Pistols. Reportedly, she tried to get with Johnny Rotten first, but he wasn't receptive. So she set her sights on Sid and they were an instant couple. In January of 1978, the band started a U.S. tour, which really only lasted a couple of weeks due to a lot of show cancellations as well as internal drama within the band. They were infamous for that. The men were at each other's throats, but Sid's heroin use was getting much worse. Of course, the band and other people involved in the band all blamed Nancy for this. During one show in Texas, Sid hit someone in the audience in the head 
with his bass guitar after the audience member had been shouting derogatory things at him. At another venue in Texas, due to being in withdrawals, Sid took a razor and cut the words, quote, gimme a fix, unquote, into his chest. And at yet another show, he peeled off a bandage on, from the inside of his elbow that was covered in infection from an injection site into the crowd. He and Nancy were infamously up and down as well. Their relationship was tumultuous to say the least, and both were severely hooked on drugs. She would yell and scream at him if he did not bring her drugs, and the verbal abuse would escalate until he lost his temper and he would hit her. At one point, he had broken her nose and even torn part of her ear, but then things would calm down for a while. And as messed up as their relationship was, it was obvious to everyone that they actually loved each other. When she was sick or not feeling good, he would lovingly nurse her back to health. He would call her mother every day to update her, and Nancy mothered him every bit back in return. And it would appear that at least on occasion they had a somewhat open relationship, though one of the examples was of him watching her perform um, fellatio on a man for drug money in a back alley. So there's that. Now, during a stop in Nashville, Sid beat a reporter with a bicycle chain over the head several times. His violent outbursts were not good for business, and record labels and really the music industry as a whole were well aware of Sid's antics. Now, later in 1977, the band flew back to Heathrow Airport where they got into this huge physical fight, spitting on each other and yelling at the airport employees. Their music label immediately dropped them, but another label took a chance and picked them up. They celebrated the new contract by holding a press conference outside of none other than Buckingham Palace. After, they threw a party in the office of their new label. Sid was doped up and drunk and vandalized as well as puked all over the director's office desk. Needless to say, that label dropped them in six days. And really, his escalating antics are the stuff of legend if you really want to dig for this information yourself. His affinity for self-harm is insane. The tabloids also labeled Nancy, quote, nauseating Nancy due to her regular public outbursts and violence. And during all of this, mind you, Sid's very own mother was smuggling him drugs whenever she could. So the tour that was nearly a complete disaster ended in San Francisco in January of 1978. This was supposed to be a show to introduce them to the rather large American punk crowd, and it wound up being their final show. With Sid beating up a security guard out by the pool on a previous night and no intervention in sight, he was now, quote, free to destroy himself, unquote. So after the band broke up, Nancy decided to make herself Sid's manager, and she actually did manage to get him a few gigs playing with some other musicians and he played in front of some good crowds in the US but still he seemed to go out of his way to insult people. But these would also be some of his very last performances. 
After this, Sid and Nancy basically shacked up together in the Hotel Chelsea in New York City and melted into an endless cycle of drug use. Nancy called her mother on October 8, 1978, saying that she felt her kidneys were bothering her and she wanted money. Her mother told her to go ahead and go to the doctor and just have them send her parents the bill. Sid grabbed the phone and hurled insults before hanging up. Nancy called later, more calm, and began telling her mother of the abuse that she had endured at the hands of Sid Vicious. She shrugged off his behavior by saying that he had been depressed as of late and not feeling himself, quote-unquote. She then apparently asked if her mother would send them to a treatment center. The phone call ended on a positive note. Two days later, Nancy purchased a knife as a gift for Sid. That day and the next, various drug dealers were seen coming in and out of the room they were staying in, room 100. One of these dealers stated that they saw Nancy alive between 4 and 5 a.m., the early morning of October 12th. They would be the last person to see Nancy alive. Sid would say that he woke up to find a trail of blood on the floor that led to the bathroom. There, he found Nancy under the sink, dead from a single stab wound to her stomach. Horrified, he called down to the front desk for help. Now, he told the police that he had not killed her, that he wasn't even in the room. Then he said that he had stabbed her and he called himself a dirty dog. He was arrested and charged with her murder. Sid was released on bail a few days later, his bail provided by Richard Branson himself. Then a Sex Pistols Christmas album, of all things, was announced to try to help pay for his defense expenses, but that never happened. As if he weren't already at rock bottom, Nancy's death destroyed what amount of Sid was left. He mourned for her while simultaneously becoming more wild. He called Nancy's mother saying, quote, I don't know why I'm alive anymore now that Nancy is gone, unquote. Soon after, he cut his wrists clear to his elbows, and he tried to jump out of a hotel room window that he was sharing with his mother. He was then admitted to the psychiatric ward at Bellevue Hospital. He wrote a letter to Nancy's mother that read, quote, We always knew that we would go to the same place when we died. We so much wanted to die together in each other's arms. I cry every time I think about that. I promised my baby that I would kill myself if anything ever happened to her, and she promised me the same. This is my final commitment to my love." Unquote. Once out of Bellevue, Sid went right back to the drugs. In early December, he got into a fight after grabbing at a man's girlfriend and was arrested for assault. Though he was in jail for a couple of months, he was able to convince someone to bail him out in February 1979. While there, his friend Alan Jones stated Sid had been physically attacked and raped. He was speaking regularly about his want to commit suicide so that he could be with Nancy. At some point, he acquired a new girlfriend about four months after Nancy's death. So the night that he was released, having been clean for almost two months, he took his usual shot of heroin that his mother provided him, and apparently it was not potent, and there was some other issue, I'm not sure, but he didn't get the fix that he had been expecting. 
So he sent out a friend to get some high-grade heroin. Before his friend returned, and as other friends gathered, it was said that he was in really good spirits, playing air guitar and jumping around. Though a forensic psychiatrist stated that that would be very concerning for someone who was only just very deeply depressed before. Then his friend returned with the heroin, and the entire mood shifted. He shot up and shortly after began to turn blue. His mother and friends managed to pull him out of it and keep him from dying, but nearly everyone left the apartment after that. Unfortunately, Sid was able to talk the friend that had gotten the heroin for him into giving him just a little bit more. This was just two short hours after he had survived that overdose. Once the friend was convinced that Sid was okay, he then decided to leave. He gave what little heroin he had left to Sid's mother and told her to not let him have any until much later in the morning. Now, there is kind of some gray area as to how he got the rest that his mother was holding for him. Be it that he found it while she was sleeping or she gave it to him, but regardless, he asked his girlfriend to inject him and she refused, and supposedly and later confessed that because he was unsteady and sweaty from his very recent overdose, his own mother shot him up. And even more people say that his mother purposefully overdosed him and killed him in an act of mercy. But who's to say? On the morning of February 2nd, 1979, Anne found her 21-year-old son dead in his girlfriend's bed. Apparently, no funeral home in New York would host his funeral due to his reputation, and he was eventually cremated. And against the wishes of Nancy's parents, his ashes were scattered over her grave. Now, later his mother claimed to have found a suicide note in a pocket of his leather jacket that said, quote, We had a death pact, and I have to keep my half of the bargain. Please bury me next to my baby. Bury me in my leather jacket, jeans, and motorcycle boots. Goodbye. Unquote. According to an article on popmatters.com, quote, Naive fans viewed Sid's death as the ultimate act of rebellion and punk ideals, a sign that he was willing to be punk's sacrificial lamb. Unquote. And I could not disagree more. His mother died of an overdose in 1996. There are some theories as to what happened to Nancy. Some people that knew him believe that a drug dealer killed her for the $1,000 in cash missing out of the room and that the knife used was not the same blade as Sid's. Some say the actor that went by the name of Rocket's Red Glare confessed to murdering her inside his kind of circle of friends that he had delivered drugs to the room that night. Some say she killed herself because she had attempted to so many times in her life. Nancy's own mother said that she thought perhaps Nancy had demanded Sid prove his love for her by ending her suffering. And remember, she's schizophrenic. Nancy's mother said, quote, The press portrayed Sid and Nancy as Romeo and Juliet in black leather roaring in hell, unquote. I think this is kind of dangerous. Sid's story starts off bad and progressively gets worse. 
And I have to admit that I was aware of Sid and his overall reputation, but I learned quite a bit during my research. And I have to say that he displayed a lot of markers for someone seriously disturbed enough to have possibly become a future repeat murderer. He is glamorized when he shouldn't be. He tortured and murdered cats. He was violently abusive to Nancy. I mean, the list is long, and it's not out of the realm of possibility that he killed her. And I also believe that, had his mother chose to grow up, step up, choose her son over herself, and been a responsible parent, he might have been okay. And I think his mother is nearly as responsible as he is for his deviant behavior, but that's just me. Now, do I think that he murdered Nancy? It's certainly believable that, in a drug-fueled emotional situation, he could very well have, considering his regular physical abuse of her during their short relationship, but the money missing is certainly a compelling argument for a drug deal robbery gone wrong. And no one will ever know other than the people who are no longer on this earth. So tell me, folks, what do you think? Do you think he killed Nancy? Do you think his mother is very much to blame for what happened to him? I want to know your thoughts. Leave me a comment on the video or you can DM me at serial underscore killing on Instagram. Feel free to email me at serialkillinginstagram at gmail.com. And as always, thank you so much for listening because I know you could be listening to anyone else, but you chose me and I appreciate that every single time. Thanks, guys. Have a great day.